0: Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 46, as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition through the first of the 66 books in our Bibles, the book of Genesis. And we're going to be in chapter 46 and chapter 47 this morning, and I'm going to be preaching a message I've entitled, Taking Inventory, Taking Inventory. Uh, the grocery shopping in the Walliser household is divided between myself and my wife, Amy. I'm responsible for only one area of shopping, (laughs) the meat. I pick out all the meat. I buy the meat. I take catalog myself of when the meat, I think, is going to go on sale. So I go buy it on sale. And my wife, she's responsible for buying, well, everything else, right? So um, there are occasions when I go to buy meat at the store, I will venture outside the meat aisle. I will go to other areas of groceries that are not my area of responsibility, but I cannot pass up a sale. And I'll come home with these items that I've purchased on sale. Look, I got some spaghetti sauce, honey. You know what her response is? We don't need spaghetti sauce. <laughs> I'm not responsible for this spaghetti sauce, she is. The problem is I didn't take inventory. I wasn't aware of what we had and what we needed. This time of year, many businesses are taking inventory of their stock and of what they have. As the year winds down, they're looking at things in the past, the present, the future, the past. How much did we sell or how much inventory did we move? The present, what do we currently have in stock? In the future, what goods do we need to buy to be prepared for the next year? In a similar way, as the COVID cases in our country seem to be spiking, people are taking inventory of their Toilet paper, and for whatever reason, the 500 rolls they bought last March aren't enough, they think, to sustain this next spike. So the toilet paper shelves are, inventory, are empty. Taking inventory, well, as we approach this text together, we're gonna take some personal inventory, some inventory of our spiritual lives, inventory of our past, our present, our future, through this intriguing and really captivating scriptural history of Jacob, Joseph, his family, and their settling in the land of Egypt. Now, last time we were together in the book of Genesis last week, we saw how Joseph, Jacob's son, sent word to Jacob saying, Jacob, father, bring yourself, your family, your children, your grandchildren, all your goods, all your possessions, all your flocks, all your herds, the 500 miles south to Egypt because this is a severe famine going on. And Joseph says, here, I can care for you. Here, I can provide for you in Egypt. Now, Jacob was reluctant to make that journey. And his reluctance was for good reason, because he knew the history of his father and of his grandfather. You see, his grandfather, Abraham, also journeyed to Egypt during a time of intense famine, but it was a time of moral failure in Abraham's life. Well, the land of Egypt represented a place of worldliness. The, the place of Egypt represented a pagan place of spiritual compromise. But God spoke to Jacob, and he issued those four words that were the theme for my sermon last week, do not be afraid. He said, Jacob, don't be afraid to travel down to Egypt because there he's going to care for him. So Jacob does, in fact, lead his entire family South from Beersheba into the land of Goshen in Egypt. Now, we're going to begin our reading together. We're not going to read everything this morning because you look at it in your Bible, like, well, there's a lot of Scripture. We're going to skip some parts, but I want us to begin in verse 28 of chapter 46 and it will kind of set up for us where we're going to be go- going in this personal inventory session. Verse 28 says this, he, that's Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. So again, this massive family clan of nearly 70 individuals with all their possessions, all their flocks, all their herds, the wagons that Joseph had sent from Egypt, these elaborate decorated wagons from Egypt were filled to the brim with all their goods, kind of like these ancient U-Haul trailers. And they're hauling all their stuff down to Egypt. Interestingly, Judah is sent on ahead. The brother who was originally responsible for the separation of Jacob and Joseph. He is now sent by Jacob to lead the way, something of a scout for the clan. Judah is definitely a changed man. We've seen that in recent chapters, and it's borne out here as well as he leads this caravan of God's covenant people to the place of reunion, place of reunion in Goshen. It doesn't take much spiritual imagination To see how metaphorically, just as Judah is leading the covenant people to a reunion with a beloved son, the Holy Spirit of God is leading his covenant people through a dark place to a reunion with the beloved son. There's an entirely new life awaiting Jacob and his family. They're moving to the land of Goshen, a land that they've never been to before, they've never seen. They didn't even get to look at pictures ahead of time to see what the land was gonna look like. No pictures in those days. You've probably heard some real estate stories like I have with the Chattanooga housing market of late, where people are moving here from out of town and and they'll find homes coming for sale here in Chattanooga and they'll put offers on houses 10 and 20% above listing price, sight unseen, just seeing pictures on the internet. They're fleeing the hostilities of places like California, Michigan, to come to the promised land of Chattanooga. It's true. It's happening. And here, they're moving to Goshen, sight unseen. And I want to remind you again of the context of the writing of the book of Genesis. It was written 400 years after these events that are recorded. It was written by Moses to the people of Israel after they had made their exodus from the harsh slavery and oppression of Egypt. And so that's the context of these original readers. And I want you to think about the fact that they are hearing the description of this kind benefactor, this kind Joseph, who was a patriarch of the Hebrew people, caring for them. And they're learning how they were actually settled in the land of Egypt, the very land they've just been rescued from. The very land they've just been delivered from, escaping harsh and cruel conditions. What's going on here? Well, there's some obvious parallels for us as well. We, too, are a covenant people, and we are are on a journey to a new home. We're just passing through. We're on a pilgrimage in a pagan land. We're not going to stay in Egypt forever. And we, like the people of Israel, we can go through hard seasons. We can go through difficulties, crises upheavals. And because of this, we must take inventory. We must take some personal inventory as the people of God and ask ourselves some questions. In fact, from the text, I want to draw out five questions that we see as marks of grace in their lives that we ought to ask ourselves as the covenant people of God. Five questions to consider. The first one is this. Number one, is your confidence in the mediator? is your confidence, trust, dependency in the mediator. The covenant people settling in Egypt had to place their complete confidence and dependence on Joseph as their mediator between themselves as sojourners and the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Let's read verse 29 through the end of chapter 46 and see how this plays out. The Bible says this, then Joseph prepared his chariot, and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and I know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. (laughs) Everything with regard to the covenant people settling in Egypt, revolves around the agency of Joseph as their mediator, as their go-between. All of their provision, all of their prosperity, the land in which they're going to live, it's all dependent upon Joseph mediating between them and Pharaoh on their behalf. And Joseph is first presented here in this chapter, in this section, as something of a majestic figure, it says that he, he prepared his chariot. And I want you to imagine these weary travelers, these vagabond shepherds who've been traveling for miles through drought-ridden land, dusty and worn out. Here they see in the distance this chariot with majestic horses pulling it. And no doubt the entourage of Joseph, Zathanath-Paneah, the majestic ruler in Egypt, is coming towards the people of Jacob. It would have been a sight to behold, a majestic image. And it says here that Joseph prepared his chariot. In other words, he personally took care to hitch the horses up. I just imagine as Joseph heard, hey, Joseph, your family, they've arrived in Goshen. He didn't tell somebody else to hitch the horses. He did it himself. He said, I'm going to meet them. What great anticipation you can sense here after having been separated from his father for over 20 years. And interestingly, the verse 29 says, he Presented himself. The Hebrew word there, the verb translated presented, is often translated as appeared, presented. In fact, interestingly, in the book of Genesis, that verb is used nine other occasions. Every other occasion where that verb is used, it's referring to a theophany. If you'll remember, if you've been with us in our study, what a theophany is it's a visible manifestation of. Of God before a human. He appeared. He presented himself. And I've told you, most of those theophanies are actually Christophanies a pre incarnate vision, pre incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ to the patriarchs, to the people. But here, and only here in Genesis, that verb refers to Joseph. I think the connection is undeniable. Joseph is a picture of the appearing of Christ. He's coming like this godlike image to them. And obviously, we see the implications, right? The Holy Spirit inspired Moses to use this verb because here is, is this magnificent, godlike appearance. This is not just the humble shepherd boy Jacob remembered from over 20 years ago. In this appearance, in this presentation of Joseph, He is exalted, he's majestic, he's a mighty ruler over Egypt, and all of Jacob's household would have been awestruck at the vision. Yet at the same time, this majestic figure, this royalty, he's fully human. He comes down off of his chariot, and he goes over to Jacob, and he embraces him. The text says, a good while. Think about it. Zaphanath Paneah, the Egyptian ruler, is bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh. He's glorious, he's majestic, but yet he's a humble servant. And did you notice in that embrace, not a word is spoken. I imagined it was a lengthy embrace. The text says, a good while. They're just clinging to one another, weeping enjoying one another's presence. Some of you have probably experienced this, this happening as I have in airports as I'm getting off of a plane and walking through the terminal heading to baggage claim. I'll come upon a whole gaggle of people just across the threshold of where they're allowed to be. And they've got posters. Welcome home. They've got balloons. And they're waiting for this military deployed family member to come across that threshold. And I can't hold back the tears when I watch their embraces. Anybody with me on that? I see these families and I see this soldier come and they embrace him and mama's just crying her eyes out because her boy is home. This is what's happening here. Jacob has been separated for over two decades from Joseph. And finally, Joseph descends from the chariot and they embrace and they weep over this reunion. What a tender embrace. And I know there wasn't a dry eye in the crowd of all of Joseph's family. And this reunion is particularly compelling because it's not just a reunion of long separated family. It's a reunion of grace. Grace has triumphed over jealousy. Grace has triumphed over envy and deceit. It's a reunion of grace that has triumphed over severe family dysfunction. It's a triumph of grace over abiding sin in this family. And then after a long embrace, Jacob picks up his head. He looks at Joseph and he says, okay, I can die now. (laughs) I'm good. This is all I wanted. My soul is rejoicing. I can die. I've seen you. You're alive. As I read that this week when I studied, I couldn't help but think of a similar experience in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a description of a godly man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon is described as a devout man, one who uh, goes to the temple every day. The Holy Spirit is upon him, and he had received word in his spirit from the Lord that he would not see death until he experienced, quote, the consolation of Israel. Well, what's the consolation of Israel? that Israel's Redeemer, Israel's Christ, Israel's Messiah, would be revealed to him. So day after day, he goes to the temple, and he's just watching, and he's just waiting. And he sees young Hebrew couple after young Hebrew couple come through those doors, and there they are with their newborn child, dedicating him or her to the Lord. Until finally, it's just another Thursday, and this ordinary, average-looking couple named Joseph and Mary walk through the doors of the temple. And the Spirit says to Simeon, the consolation of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel. And I just wonder what went through this young mama's mind as this old, wrinkled, graying man comes up and takes her baby out of her arms. And he's holding up the Christ child. And notice what he says in Luke 2, verse 29. Simeon, this old man, says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon says, okay, I can die now. And Jacob, upon seeing Joseph, says, okay, I can die now. Now, Joseph, once he gets his emotions under control here, he begins to act and function as the mediator for his family between them and Pharaoh. He begins to coach them and instruct them how you're supposed to interact. After all, he is a student of Egyptian customs and cultures and laws. He knows they are despised shepherds, and shepherds by way of custom in Egypt are an abomination to the Egyptians. But Joseph, he's not afraid to call them brothers. Joseph is not too proud to identify personally with them. You see, there's no way The family of Jacob would have been received in Egypt in and of themselves. There's no way they could have had any type of property or provision or sustenance apart from the direct mediation of Joseph. He's the go between. It's from Joseph's position and from his personal intercession to Pharaoh on their behalf that they can even have a place in that land. They had sinned against Joseph, interestingly but now he becomes their mediator. Notice how he affects this mediation in the first six verses of chapter 47 as you look in your Bibles. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. If you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Again, Joseph here is the mediator, the go-between between his father and his brothers and Pharaoh. And so, therefore, they have to put their full confidence, their full trust, their full dependence on Joseph as the mediator. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out the spiritual connotation here. Yeah. What this is pointing to, as Christ is our mediator between the king of the universe, God the Father. Yeah. And here, the mediator, who we have sinned against grossly, comes on our behalf to mediate for us in our stead. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, For there is one God. And there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so as we take inventory this morning, church, as we take inventory this Sunday morning, a key question we need to ask is this, are we placing all of our confidence in the mediator? All of our trust, all of our hopes, all of our faith in Jesus himself. Because listen, Jesus is coming again. Yeah. That word that was translated appeared and prepared to see him here in, in the book of Genesis that I mentioned earlier, that was a Christophany. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. I don't want to bore you with too much stuff, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint. And so the Greek word used here for Joseph appearing is the same Greek word used in the New Testament for Jesus appearing in the clouds. Isn't that awesome? It says Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen? Jesus is returning, and he will set all things right. And when he appears, he's coming in majestic royalty and splendor on a great white horse. But he's coming as our brother. He's coming as our mediator. And he gets off that horse, and he welcomes us in his arms. He is the mediator, the man, Jesus Christ. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. And he overrules every circumstance of this life. He settles our hearts even in the deepest and darkest seasons in this foreign Egyptian land. Jacob and his family, they did settle in Egypt because they're complete confidence was in the mediator and that's our first question for inventory are you confident in the mediator secondly it's this question is your conduct wise is your conduct wise again just because Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt it didn't give his family members license to just do whatever they wanted to do They couldn't be just like bulls in a china shop and go grab whatever they wanted to grab whenever they wanted to grab and say, hey, you guys must not know who our brother is. It's Zaphnaf-Paneah. Oh, that's what I thought. See you later. there's none of that. He says, you got to walk with wisdom in Egypt. And so again, he coaches them. He prepares them for their introduction to Pharaoh. He tells them, these are the questions Pharaoh's going to ask you. And this is the way you should respond to the questions that Pharaoh asks. Look again at verse four. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. As I mentioned, they are, as shepherds, a despised lot in Egypt. They're an abomination to the rank and file Egyptians. There's nothing in them that would endear themselves to the Egyptian people. So much so, though, that this mediation happens that Pharaoh says, listen, if any of you guys are really good at taking care of animals, I'll hire you to take care of my animals. I'll hire you to take care of my flocks. He wants them to be wise in the way they respond and the way they act before Pharaoh. And they did so according to his counsel. Now, in my humble opinion, this type of wisdom and conduct among the Egyptian culture by the covenant people of God today is severely lacking severely lacking so often Christians don't want to walk in wisdom and grace among those outside the family of God interestingly when Jesus sent his disciples out on their first kind of short-term mission trip he gave them multiple instructions and included in those instructions were these in Matthew 10 verse 16 He said, "'Behold, I'm sending you out "'in the midst of wolves, "'so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves.'" Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Let me ask you, do you walk with this kind of wisdom among the world, among those who are outside the church? Paul gave a similar instruction to the church in Colossae. He said, "'Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, "'making the best use of the time. "'Let your speech always be gracious.'" seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Do you speak and act in such a way towards outsiders that it commends the gospel to them? Is your talking and communicating, posting on Facebook, is it antagonizing to the lost or does it endear the gospel to the lost? Do you function with arrogance? After all, I'm a child of God. you function with humility, with humble graciousness towards others. See, just because Jesus is your Savior and you're related to the King of Kings doesn't give you license to act rudely and insensitively to other people. So think about this inventory question. Is your conduct wise? Are you as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove? Is your speech gracious and seasoned with salt can an unbelieving world look at your life and say, wisdom, peace? What's your interaction been like? So take some inventory here. Is your conduct wise? Here's the third question for personal inventory. Number three, do you convey blessings? Do you convey blessings? Notice verse seven through 10. The Jewish patriarch Jacob has amazingly an interview with Pharaoh. This is an interaction between the leader of the Hebrew people, and the leader of the Egyptian people, the summit of these two leaders. And we read about it in verses 7 through 10. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, "'How many are the days of the years of your life?' And Jacob said to Pharaoh, "'The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years.'" Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. This is an amazing contrast between these two figures here in this account. You have Pharaoh, and I just imagine his regal presentation there in his court, and there he is sitting on his throne with all of his court attendants around him and all of the pomp and the circumstance of, of royalty and authority and power and all the trappings that go with it. And here is humble Jacob, weary, old, 130-year-old, wrinkled Jacob, still struggling with that hip injury he had in his wrestling match with God. And he's leaning on his cane, and there he is before the lone superpower of the world. What a contrast of images. All the trappings of royalty are before Jacob, the sight of which he has never seen before in his life. And what impression do you get from their interaction? Amazingly, the paragraph begins with Jacob, the poor, old, decrepit man, blessing the king. And the paragraph concludes with Jacob giving a blessing to the king. I mean, if you read that, you might think it should be the other way around. It should be the king, the seat of royalty, the one with all Egypt as his possession, giving the blessing to Jacob. But that's not what happens. Jacob blesses him. But yet, he doesn't do it just once. He does it twice. The lesser, seemingly, the shepherd blessing the greater, the king, Pharaoh. And you have to wonder, in this exchange, Who's the dominant figure, and who's the lesser figure? Again, Pharaoh, after all, is the most powerful man in the world with all the trappings of royalty. And unlike his sons, Jacob never refers to himself as Pharaoh's servant. How could Jacob be so unimpressed and undaunted by Pharaoh's humanly impressive presence? Here's why I think Jacob had been In the presence of God. And when you have been in the presence of the speaker of stars, when you have been in the visible presence of the breather of galaxies, there is no human power, no human authority that will ultimately impress you. He knew Pharaoh is but clay in the hands of Almighty God. Now, it's one thing to recognize the smallness of human power compared to the power of God, but amazingly, Jacob blesses Pharaoh not once but twice. Here's a principle that's playing out here from Hebrews 7.7. 7. It's a general principle for life. The Bible says this, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And we would think on human standards, Pharaoh is the superior, not according to Hebrews 7.7. 7. According to Hebrews 7.7, Jacob, the poor vagabond beggar looking for a place to stay, is the superior, not by virtue of his wealth, not by virtue of his experience, but by virtue of his relationship with the God of the universe. Jacob is a child of the greatest king of all, and Jacob humbly knows that. You know, it's so easy for us to be impressed by human power, isn't it? It's so easy for us to become enamored by human celebrity, so much so that we prop up these human celebrities as those who give us guidance for how culture should be. Ridiculous, right? There is no authority except God. And what this communicates for us is that we don't need to be intimidated by those who have attained some measure of human power or influence success. It's not that we're cynical or disrespectful in any way. It's that we recognize God's divine order. Friends, if you are a son or daughter of the king, then you have a treasure that is greater than all this world's wealth. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. In fact, I love just about everything that Charles Spurgeon puts. He described it like this. He says, show the world that your God is worth 10,000 worlds to you. Show rich men how rich you are in your poverty when the Lord your God is your helper. Show the strong man how strong you are in your weakness when underneath you are the everlasting arms. Friends, every rich man, every powerful man, every influential man, listen, is carrying a coffin on his back. They all have an appointment with death. Every one of us are going to exit this world with the same stuff we brought into it. Absolutely nothing. A true believer can humbly stand before the pharaohs of this world in full confidence knowing the true wealth really comes from God. And then from that position of wealth, we can convey blessings to others. Now, before we move to the next question, I think it's important to point out here that Jacob giving a blessing to Pharaoh. Jacob verbally saying to Pharaoh, in the name of Yahweh, I bless you, is really a fulfillment of the patriarchal covenant that God made with Abraham. Do you remember that? God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. And here, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, is fulfilling that promise. Through Jacob, the descendant of Abraham, Egypt is being blessed. But that's not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. The ultimate seed, the ultimate descendant of Abraham, who would be a blessing to all the nations, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that all of the earth can be blessed because Christ died for not only our sins, but the sins of the world. And how is that blessing being delivered? How is it being transmitted to the nations? Through us. We are the vehicle Christ is called to deliver the gospel to the nations with clarity and with authority. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Here's the fourth question for consideration Do you confess your unworthiness? As so we take some personal spiritual inventory this morning, I think it's important for us to say we're unworthy. We're unworthy. Sandwiched in the middle of this interview between Pharaoh and Jacob, where he gives those two blessings, he gives a very interesting conveyance of his own humility with a straightforward confession of his unworthiness. Look again at verse nine. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. Jacob isn't distorting the truth. He's not trying to prop himself up and kind of impress Pharaoh by his great resume. No, instead he's very honest. He's very frank. He says, few, And evil have been my days. Now, months ago, we spent several weeks studying the life of Jacob, and we saw that is indeed a true statement. (laughs) Jacob was an awful character, a deceiver, a manipulator, a conniver, a grasper who was seeking to control. And because of his decisions, he was a perfect example of the unchanging law. You reap what you sow. You sow th- these things, you're going to reap these fruit. So through his conniving and deception, he steals from his brother the blessing of the father Isaac. And Esau, his brother, says, I'm going to kill him. That's it. I'm killing him. He's a dead man. So what does Jacob have to do? He runs. He flees. He goes north. So he finally makes it all the way up to the northern country where his uncle Laban is. And that's where really some of the experiences he has then are, are not a direct result of his own poor choices, but just simply the fact that we live in a fallen world. I was talking with somebody this week, and I told him, hey, listen, some of the things we go through, the junk we experience, it's because there's sinners everywhere. This is a messed up world, and we're going to experience the results of that. So Uncle Laban and Jacob's life, What does he do? He abuses him. He victimizes him. He's an indentured servant, slave to Jacob, to uh, Laban for almost 20 years. Finally, when he leaves there, what happens to him? Well, his family uh, betrays him. His sons betray him. His daughter, Dinah, is brutally sexually assaulted. His beloved, Rachel, dies in childbirth. His oldest son tries to usurp his family authority in the clan by having incest with his concubine, And then, to top it all off, for 20 years, he thinks his beloved son Joseph is dead. It's been a pretty crummy life for Jacob. So he says quite honestly to Pharaoh, an unadulterated truth, this old shepherd speaking to this great king, the days of my life have been evil. He communicates his own unworthiness. In other words, Pharaoh, there's nothing in me that should be impressive to you. I got nothing. So let me ask you, is that the way you walk among unbelievers? Or do you try to prop yourself up? Do you try to correct your resume and fudge a little bit here on your experiences? This is the important question. Do we humbly proclaim, it's not me, it's all of grace? Are you honest with yourself and honest with those around you about your humble state? And that really leads to the fifth question for our inventory this morning. Number five, are you content with God's supply? We won't take the time to read the rest of chapter 47, but in the rest of chapter 47, there are, in these final moments, uh, three specific areas of supply that God makes for Jacob and for his family that I want to point out uh, from the text this morning. The first one is this, number one, the supply of property. Property. Look at verse 11 of chapter 47. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, Ramses uh, was a geographical marker for the, the original readers of this um, narrative. Ramses didn't exist 400 years before the Exodus, but, he's, but Moses is telling the Exodus people, hey, the land where they settled, it was a land you know of as the land of Ramses. It's the land of Goshen. It's the best of the land. It's the prime real estate. And did you notice the text says that Joseph gave them a possession. This language is an indication of property ownership. They had a deed entitled to some land in Egypt because of Joseph. Now, the benefit of this land, this property, goes far beyond just the grazing capacity for their flocks and herds. Because of its location in Egypt, it was far enough away from Egypt proper that they could raise their families with a distinct God-centered worldview apart from the Egyptian main culture. Secondly, 400 years later, when the Exodus occurred, the land of Goshen was perfectly positioned for their exodus away from Egypt. So God's in all this, obviously. So first, God supplies them with property. Secondly, God supplies them through Joseph with provision. Provision. Look at verse 12. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, food was in short supply. The famine was severe in the land of Egypt as with every other place. But Joseph made sure there was ample provision for Jacob and for his household. So God supplied property, God supplied provision, thirdly, God supplied through Joseph protection. Protection. Look at verse thirteen. Now there was no food in the in all the land of the famine, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Now if you take the time to read verse fourteen and following, you'll discover that the rank and file Egyptian citizen was severely impacted by this famine. So much so that they begin selling stuff off of their own personal holdings and possessions so that they could buy grain to feed their kids. So they're property owners. You know what they do? They go to Joseph, and Joseph, under the act of Pharaoh, says, okay, I'll take your property, and you can have this grain. So then all of a sudden, you don't have private property ownership among the rank-and-file Egyptians. Who owns all the property? The government. (laughs) Pharaoh does. Then they need food again. Well, we've got this cattle, okay? We'll give you this grain so your family can eat. You give us the cattle. Now all the the cattle that's owned privately is now owned by the government. And then it got even worse, and many Egyptians said, we don't have any more property. We sold that to eat. We don't have more cattle. We sold that to eat. The only thing we can sell is our own lives, and they sold themselves into slavery so they could eat. So now the government owns their property, owns their possessions, and owns them as slaves. Does this sound familiar to any place that we're familiar with? But God protected Jacob and his family. Look at verse 27. By contrast, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. While everyone else in Egypt is losing, 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 the people of God are gaining, gaining, gaining. Now listen, I need to warn you. I am not a prosperity gospel preacher. I think that is a doctrine of demons. But God takes care of his people. And here we see this. God is taking care of his people through the agency of a mediator. God supplied property, God supplied provision, and God supplied protection. Now, again, our question for personal inventory, are you content with God's supply? Think about these three areas. Are you content with God's provision of your property? Your home, where you live, or are you constantly on Zillow looking for something a little bit bigger, a little bit better? Are you content with your provision, the food, material possessions, your clothing? You gotta get that next new truck that's coming off the lot. Are you content with your protection that God's provided, the job security you may have, the financial income you've received? and most importantly, the spiritual protection we have in Christ. Now, this section ends in a similar way that it started. The first question we asked in our personal inventory today is your confidence in the mediator. This chapter ends by Jacob, the father, the patriarch, showing great confidence, dependence, and trust in his mediator, Joseph, on his behalf. Look at this as we close, verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me, And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now he doesn't die here. (laughs) Jacob would live an additional 17 years after this agreement with his son. But he lived in the confident hope that his son, the mediator, the beloved son, would carry out his promise and would bury his remains upon his death back in Canaan, would bury his body in the cemetery where Isaac is buried and where Abraham is buried. Now, why was this so important to Jacob? So much so that he made him swear, made him take a vow, made him promise. Make sure you promise to me, Joseph, you're burying me at the home cemetery. I think he, it's because he wasn't like the Egyptians who thought, well, where you're buried, how you're buried, what you're buried with, you know, that dep- depends on how the afterlife is going to be. It's none of that. He's wants to be buried there for the benefit of his descendants. He wants his descendants to know Egypt ain't our home. He wants his descendants and his children and his grandchildren after him to, them to know the promise of God for the covenant people is the promised land in Canaan. It's not Egypt. Egypt is not our final home. It's not the destination. It's not the final place for us. And friend, America is not our final home. We're longing for a city not built with hands. Our allegiance is to a greater nation, a greater country, the country of God. And Jacob here sets an example for us who are pilgrims in a strange land. As we enjoy the luxuries of this Egyptian land, our sights must be set on another city. Because all of us, friends, have an unavoidable appointment with death every single one of us. And it's not about where you're living now. It's not about the property you have now, the provisions. It's about the future. Where are you going to be? So take some personal inventory. Have you placed your faith, confidence, in the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting fully in him, his agency on your behalf? Have you placed your faith in what Christ has done through his death on the cross, taking upon his own body the punishment for you and for me? Take some inventory. And that leads to my last thought. Despite all the enticements of this world, we must set our hopes on the eternal provision of God.